everyone, it's Mark. Uh, I just want to give you a brief rundown of this show. Um, it's two parts, um, just because the interview was so long and so good. Decided to break it up and divide it that way. Um, in this first episode um, with Matt Bowman, we talk about an upcoming singles event in New York in May called Of One Body. And uh, we explain a little bit about what's going on with that. Then we get into uh, Matt's kind of story, his background. Um, and then finally, towards the end of the episode, we get a lot more into his book and uh, the story behind that. So um, it's a great episode, and there's going to be two parts. Uh, the first one is out now, and this next one will come out within a few days. How's it going, everyone? Uh, I'm Mark Jorgensen, and I'm recording our second official episode of this new podcast um, with us today. I'm really happy to have with us uh, Matthew Bowman. Uh, he's an author and a professor. He's taught at a few colleges here in the D.C. area uh, and beyond. And uh, he's going to talk with us about his book, uh, The Mormon People, which came out in 2012. Mm-hmm. That is correct. And uh, a couple other things, just uh, the state of Mormon singles and uh, get a little bit into to Matt's life, I guess, as well. So... Um, Matt, I just wanted to start out here. Um, you were talking, you were telling me off mic a little bit about the state of Mormon singles. So that's an event that's going on in May. It is up in New York. Yes. So what's what's your role in that? And um, sure, you, you said there's a survey out now, which is yes, there is. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on in Mormon singledom, of course. Um, but what has not really been done, and what no one has really talked much about, is is a more kind of academic. Um, thoughtful, let's back up and sort of look at the issue of Mormon single life. And what's interesting is this is a topic that's been studied in a bunch of other religions because, of course, in, in America for the past 30 years or so, singleness has been on the rise. Marriage rates are declining and going down. This is true in American culture. It's true among Mormons. It's true among Catholics. It's true among evangelicals. And there have been some interesting sociological studies done recently of evangelical singledom and Catholic singledom. Um, but no one's really looked at this issue in Mormonism very much. So we're pulling together this conference, and it's going to be kind of quasi-academic, but also quasi, I think, for just interested people, and certainly Mormons, um, who might be interested in talking about what it means to be a Mormon single today, what the place of Mormon singles are in Mormon culture, Mormon institutions, and Mormon doctrine as well, as well as, I think, looking at um, just kind of sociological questions about how Mormon singles live, um, how they court, how they feel like they're treated in the institution. So we've got a number of speakers lined up, and there's also going to be some kind of quantitative and qualitative analysis of this as well. And this survey that we've just put online um, is one way of getting at that. And there's a website for this. Uh, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash of one body. Uh, okay. the, the title of the conference is Of One Body, the State of Mormon Singledom. It's a quotation from the You can also just find that like on Facebook or something, right? Yes. Of One Body. Yeah, the State of Mormon Singledom. You can look it up there too and um, RSVP there and take the survey there if you would like as well. And we're excited. We've got um, nearly 300 responses to the survey and it's been up for less than 24 hours. Wow. So that's a pretty good turnout. Who, who created the survey? Was that because Clayton Christensen is involved? Was he kind of like insistent yeah. upon this? 
Um, he, he, we offered a survey to him and yeah. said, you know, we can do this because we're going to have all of these people signing up online for this. And he said, I'd love that. And then he's going to take this data and I don't know, you know, work some funky magic with it or something. And, and we may put some of it up, you know, during his presentation. He is giving the plenary address at this, at this thing. Um, the survey was created by three or four people um, who sort of volunteered and pitched in. A couple of them are... Um, quantitative analysis specialists, and then a couple of lay people like myself, and the other organizer, Sharon Harris, who don't really know what we're doing when it comes to surveys, but have a lot of questions, which I hope is useful. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, hopefully listeners can check that out. Um, state of Mormon Singles, um, or wait, Of One Body. Of One, of body, one body, The State of Mormon Singledom. The State of Mormon Singledom. And yes. you can find that on Facebook or at the tiny URL thing. So, um, Matt, um, you grew up in Utah. I did. Uh, how was that? Uh, it was good. You know, I think, uh, you know, if you're a, a Mormon on the East Coast, people tend to bag on Utah and say, you know, we're not Utah Mormons, all of that. But, you know, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I actually really enjoyed it. Um, Salt Lake City is a great place to live. Haters are going to hate, man. Yeah, it's That's true. <laughs> so you grew up, and uh, you went, you did your undergraduate at University of Utah. Yes, you were telling me that you studied film studies initially. I did, briefly. When I went to college, um, initially I was interested in movie making and yeah. in filmmaking. I, I began as sort of a... I, you can't quite declare when you're a freshman, certainly, but it was, it was kind of my intention to do that, and I took a couple of film studies classes. And then, I don't know, I, I just... Uh, I, I, I liked college generally. I, I couldn't... <laughs> figure on one major I think so I sort of drifted over to history eventually and then did English as well and then some political science also how was the University of Utah at that time you were there at the late late 90s I was there late 90s early 2000s so was it all about like tech startups and all that kind of oh, thing you know, you know, get out of college go start a company was, <laughs> I remember that yeah that there, there was certainly bit. some of that you know I was I was I was hanging out in uh, places like Carlson Hall and Another, you know, really, Carlson Hall was where the history department was, and it was an ancient, ancient building built in the 30s. Um, it used to be a woman's dormitory, and so none of the bathrooms had urinals in them. And it was, you know, just where a bunch of humanities people hung out. We would sit in the basement and just, and just talk about movies and books and Mormons and stuff like that. So that was kind of my experience. So that's kind of like, I, I guess I kind of got to know you. You have like these discussion groups you do here sure. in D.C., mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in a way, those discussion groups that you hold like once a month or something like that on different topics. Once a month, usually. Like it's kind of a continuation of like, like you're, you're still in college. <laughs> I mean, you're a professor, so you're still in college. Sure. But like, like you're still in college never, like having yeah. these. Yeah, never left campus in some ways, right? Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, although this, I, I, I should give credit where it's due and say that this discussion group was not my idea initially. Oh. Um, I kind of took it over and, and have been running them for four years now on end, um, but um, but it was started by Greg Prince, who, of course, is a noted Mormon author who lives up in Maryland, and he was hosting them at his house for a while, then he got sick of having hordes of young Mormons descend on his house once a month and, and spun it off and gave me the mailing list. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've been, I've been writing them for many times longer than, than he ever did. So I guess it's my thing now. Does that ever get exhausting? I mean, like, well, you know, I mean, I, this, like I said, this is the sort of thing I was doing in college. Oh, it's yeah. the sort of thing I did in grad school. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of part and parcel with what I do. And I, I, I enjoy it. I, 
I know, you know, the people, people will come and attend for several months and then kind of spin off or drop off. But there are a few people who've stuck with me over the entire span of the thing. Yeah. Who are, you, who are your who are your most like who are the people who stuck closest with you? Oh boy, the people um, who've been around the longest. Well, you know it's uh, funny we we've moved it around a fair amount as well. Um, you know, as I said, it was at Greg Prince's house initially, which is up in Potomac, Maryland. Uh, you know, forty 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 five minutes from the district. Um, then moved it to Brooks and E. Barrows' house. Um, she lives in Alexandria. I was there for maybe a year. Then we went to Brad Strum's house. It was there for a year. Then both of these people eventually said, oh, I'd rather not host it again, and they stopped coming too. Wow. And so I'm kind of exhausting people, I think, and they get sick of hosting. But luckily now, W. Pettit and Jenica Hardy have been good enough to host it for the most part for the past year and a half or so. And they don't seem to be getting tired of it yet. What could I? What just? I mean, was it ever at your? Your did you ever have a place you could have posted it yourself? At your I house? well, as I've been running it, I've always um, been teaching outside of DC, uh, and so I will come back and commute back in on the weekends and sort of couch surf a little or stay with relatives, and so I've never really had a place. Um, concurrent with hosting this that I could host it myself, unfortunately. Yeah, I, like, I did that once, too. Like, I moved to Phoenix, from Phoenix to L.A. for, like, a few, five years, three, four years ago, I forget exactly. But I kept going back to Phoenix on the weekend because mm-hmm. I still had my apartment there or something like that. Like, I know, like, yeah. I mean, what what keeps you attached to the city in D.C.? Oh, I mean, boy, I, I you know, well, I, did my, I did my Ph.D. at Georgetown. Okay, yeah. So I've been around here for, since 2004, um, yeah. Just quite a while. I, I feel like I've just sort of cultivated some pretty deep roots um, in here. And what I've been teaching, you know, when I was at Hampton Sydney College, which is a t- in a town of about 3,000 in central Virginia, oh, yeah. you know, I just didn't have much of a social scene there. And uh, I know you always only two, two, three hours away from here. So it was not, not, a, not much of a drive to come back. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess how I first. I came, became aware of you was um, I was doing some research on like uh, Mormon growth of the church in Latin America and mm-hmm. I think I was reading about Armin Maas or something it was one of the he's a Mormon scholar and uh, there was something for his, of his I forget exactly and there was like a panel discussion I think I saw like a video of people talking about this mm-hmm. and then you were on there and I was like <laughs> I think I know who that guy is and I was like oh my gosh we go to the same church or whatever oh uh, yeah 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 so that kinda, was um, boy when was that I think that was spring 2012 if I remember right or it might be off might be 2013 but it, it was leading up to the Romney election I think okay so it would have been spring 2012 yeah. there, there were a couple of panels then one of them was at, in Claremont and this may be the one you're thinking of I think this one is in New, in New York. Oh, this actually. was in New York. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one for Armin Moss in Claremont, like a panel in honor of Armin Moss, and I spoke at that. Then there was a panel on Mormonism and politics, which was in New York City. I think it was both. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I watched the video, but then uh, I saw it. like a clip of the other. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So I spoke at both of those things. Yes. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so you've kind of become pretty well known in this kind of like area of Mormon scholarship. Um, you, at the University of Utah, um, you didn't you just spend a little time where you were, you weren't really a participating mm-hmm. member of the church. Yes. Um, can we can we talk about that or sure. was that is yeah. that okay? What was what was kind of your motivation? We just weren't feeling uh, it for a while, or you like, know, it happened. Well, I was I was how old was I? I was fifteen, sixteen, um, and you know, I was at this 
point in my life where, as many teenagers are, where someone will tell you at some point, you know, you need to read the Book of Mormon and pray about it and, and get a confirmation, right? And, and that happened to me, and I prayed about it, and I didn't get a confirmation. <laughs> and, and that confused me, you know? And I, I created some kind of cognitive dissonance in my head, and I was like, huh, you know, this isn't working as it's supposed to. And I think I was young enough still that I, I had kind of the sense that things are supposed to work like people tell you they will, right? And this was maybe the first big moment in my life where I thought, whoa, wait a minute, the world doesn't always work like adults tell you it will work. And it really confused me and, and, and just I think, yeah, I had cognitive, enough cognitive dissonance. I said, I just can't go to church for a while. And At so 16? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. It had, well, I, it took me several months to get to that point. I think I was probably 15 or so when this happened. And then I was, I was ordained a priest, but then after my ordination as a priest, I stopped going. And so, your parents, were your parents were okay with that? Or were your parents weren't um, like the one, they weren't the kind they, of parents dragging you to church yeah, really? They yeah, I think of, they, they would have pref- certainly have preferred I attend church. Yeah. Um, but, um, but they didn't force me. And I, I think that was smart on their part. Maybe for some people, forcing attendance works, but it would not have worked for me. I think I was sort of had an, enough of an independent streak that I would not have reacted well had they made me attend. Um, they invited me every week, and they said, "Hey, we're all going to church. You want to come?" And you know, they would regularly do that, and I would always say no, but they never made me go. Wait, did you stay friends with, like, I mean, cause a lot of people at that age, I mean, they go to church because, you know, a lot of their friends are at sure, church and stuff like yeah. that. Did you stay friends with some yeah. of the kids at church? I yeah, mean, I did. School, I, did. You know, like... I, had, I had two really good friends in my ward growing up. Um, and, you know, being Utah, we were, you know, that award was about four blocks by two blocks. Um, and we all lived very close together. And we all remained pretty good friends, um, even through this. So I did see when I went to college, um, a lot of my LDS friends also started to um, stop attending and go inactive, uh, but not, you know, I was a couple years ahead of all the rest of them, I suppose. Oh, like your younger, younger mm-hmm. LDS friends? Or Guys that I knew in high school, for instance. Why, why did they stop going? They just I think a just, lot just... of them, yeah, a lot of them, you know, just sort of had, you know, college rebellion. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there are, there are You didn't studies. have college rebellion, you just had a I, high I school rebellion? Just... I, well, and I, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm never, I've never touched alcohol. Um, even though I was an actor for 10 years. Yeah. So, which so is odd, I think. <laughs> you just kind of skipped that whole phase. Yeah. So. But, um, you know, there, there are sociological studies that show that the great moments of inactivity or the, the points in one's life where one ceases to practice religion tend to be the late teenage years, right? And, and so I think it was not uncommon for all of my friends to kind of hit college and, you know, have a little room sprung up, as the Amish call it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, it's kind of like, if you don't really, like, for you, it seemed like you kind of had decided, like, you know, mm-hmm. hey, this is where I stand with things. It wasn't like you're, like, I'm going to, like, angry or something like that, or mad, or I need to go mm-hmm. be rebellious or something like that. It was just kind of more of a yeah. mental, kind of intellectual well, And I think, you know, then. yeah, maybe, you know, I think for, for many, I mean, I mean, I'm getting, I'll cite this survey on inactivity, and just if people want to go look at it, it's a, um, oh, I forget the title, but it is um, a survey done by Stan Albrecht, who is now the, or was, I think, or maybe still is, the president of Utah State University, who's a sociologist um, in a book called, um, an edited collection called Religious Leave-Taking, but Albrecht's study of Mormon inactivity found 
that the single greatest cause of warming inactivity is not um, oh, being upset about doctrine or wanting to violate Mormon behavioral norms or anything like that. The single greatest cause of inactivity is apathy. People just don't want to go to church because they'd rather go skiing on Sunday or something like that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think um, for many of my friends, it was simply that, right? They were in college. They just were like, oh, gosh, I want to stay out late on Saturdays. I'm getting up early to go to church is a pain, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, well, I think then, too, if you have some of those habits, I mean, you mentioned drinking, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, obviously a lot of active membership doesn't really drink. And so if you kind of get in that lifestyle, even for a while, I think it makes going back just that much harder because like, oh, I've done less. Mm-hmm. You just might not feel comfortable sure. coming back in. And maybe you try to go back and you just, mm-hmm. you get kind of, I don't know, you feel out of place or something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like, well, and certainly there's that. You know, there, there's a really, I think, well, they're both a rigorous expected Mormon behavioral code, but also a pretty rigorous unofficial kind of cultural behavioral behavioral code, which is is pretty heavily enforced, um, if only by conformity, right? So if you don't quite fit into the behavioral norms of everybody else, you're going to feel out of place. And, you know, I think it's as easy as being a guy showing up at church and not wearing a tie. You're going to feel out of place. <laughs> did so. you, so you, you went back to church. Mm-hmm. What, what, let's... Let's walk through what was yeah. what happened there. You just um, decided it was after I want to go back to I, church. I moved out here. Actually, I moved to okay. DC to attend graduate school at Georgetown, and I, did you do your PhD directly, or did you do like a graduate? I did. A, I did a master's at the U as well. And oh, at the U. Oh, yeah, and then came here for PhD. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, but I came here and I, I took a class. Um, when was it? Oh, my second semester in Georgetown, um, which a class in which I write a lot of Christian theology. Um, and I found it, I found it really powerful stuff. Um, I read Augustine, I read Thomas Aquinas, um, I read, oh, who else did I read? I, I read John of the Cross, um, I, re- I read, um, I'm trying to, I don't want to leave anybody out. A lot, a lot of, a lot, yeah. <laughs> well, Aquinas is pretty yeah, familiar yeah. to a lot of people. Martin Luther, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther is quite, yeah. pa- Martin Luther is quite powerful. Um, oh, of course, John Calvin, the Institutes oh, of the Calvin. Christian Religion, um, Reinhold Niebuhr um, was probably, I think, the, mo- the one guy who hit me the hardest. I'm not familiar with him. Where's Reinhold Niebuhr was a 20th century Lutheran, American Lutheran theologian, okay. um, who arguably is maybe the most influential 20th century public intellectual in America. Uh, this is He was active in the 40, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, and less so in the 60s and 70s. But um, this was an age when you, know, you could be a theologian and be taken seriously in American public life. Um, he wrote a lot of, I think, very... So wait, you're saying that and now that's... When did that stop? <laughs> when, when, when did that... I, do, do you know a prominent theologian who was taken seriously in American... I can't think of that. I mean, like, but like, it's, been, it's been quite a while, though, right? I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. Really think well, of, I, th- I mean, think, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think um, Niebuhr was writing it at the time... Which is kind of, it's sometimes called the tail end of the Protestant establishment. This sort of period in which a kind of generic Protestantism was more or less accepted and expected when, in when American it, when politics. When is this? Like what, about early um, 20th century? Yeah. Well, early? I mean, of course, the 19th century is this way as well, right? You just sort of assume that everyone is a Protestant of some variety or another. And, and, and it lasts until the, into the mid-20th century. I mean, it's, and then certainly, I mean, John F. Kennedy's campaign for the presidency demonstrates this because he was virulently attacked for being a Roman Catholic. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, someone as innocuous as Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote, you know, The Power of Positive Thinking and all these self-help books, was just 
terribly aggressive against Kennedy and said we can never elect a Catholic president because if we do, the Pope will be in charge of America. Catholics aren't really Christian, X, Y, Z. Right. What fascinates yeah. me most about that is like there were just so many Catholics living in America sure. at that time. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely. about about 10% or 20, well, 15% higher, higher. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of I mean, the population. And right now, Catholics are about a quarter of the American population. Yeah. Um, and, and it reached that point in the mid-20th century. So, yeah, there were many, many Catholics in America by that point. But, you know, Catholics becoming really American was a long, 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 hard slog. And, and um, they were considered un-American or anti-American for most of the 19th century. And so, so you read this guy, Niebuhr. Yeah, Niebuhr. Um, and, and he, um, you know, I, yeah, I think I just found his writing really compelling and really powerful. And his sort of enunciation of Christian worldview um, really remarkable. And it, and it moved me. Um, it moved me, I think, you know, the, the metaphor I often use is that it moved me in the same way that great art might move you, you know, or a symphony or, or, or an amazing painting or something like that. And yeah, it kind of made me, I think it, it made me want to sort of incorporate um, this into my life again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of hunted down, <laughs> hunted down some Mormons and, and, uh, and found my way back. You, how, how did you hunt them down? You just kind of found a church in, in the area? And just you know, I actually or? ran into, and it's, it's, it's sort of interesting, I had been reading um, the Bloggernackle, which is a group of Mormon right. blogs um, who are, I think, less sort of active now because blogs are sort of gone. Yeah, that was medium. like a mid-2000s. Yeah, but, you know, this was 2005, 2006, yeah. and they were, you know, yeah, that blogs were what they were hating yeah, at that point, yeah. right? They were very, very active. And I saw someone who put a post up on there and said, I, I know who that is because it was another grad student at Georgetown. And her name was Naomi Franson. Oh, and okay. I wow. I said, Hey, you're a, you're a Mormon and we just sort of and she and she took me to the Colonial Ward of all places. Wow. <laughs> and you found your home. Colonial Ward is it's a ward here in um, DC in Arlington, Virginia. Um, I'm an incredibly, yeah, incredibly, incredibly type A singles ward. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did not immediately slide into my place in the Colonial Ward. So it, it was kind of a rough... I mean, I guess you were committed to it then, right? I yeah, mean, well, I mean, it, it, yeah. took, it took a little while, I think. I, I would sort of show up and, and bail on Elder's Quorum a lot. I yeah. was sort of in and out a little bit. You know, it's sort of like lowering yourself into a hot tub, I suppose. As you kind of came back in activity, sure. it was like you had all this like Christian literature yeah. that you were really kind of drew well, inspiration from. Right, right, right. And then for you, it was just kind of like, oh, well, what the Book of Mormon might Mormonism? add to that. Whereas sure. for a lot of Mormons growing up, it might be a little bit the reverse. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, you of... know I think um, what had been happening, and it wasn't just like I, I was completely divorced from Mormonism. You know, certainly I was still in Salt Lake City, even though I wasn't attending church. Yeah. Um, but when I was at the University of Utah, I was hanging out with a bunch of people who were interested in Mormon history. And so I was reading stuff then. Um, you know, um, Rough Stone Rolling came out in early 2005. Oh, yeah, that's that's right. the, the sort of exhaustive Joseph Smith biography. And I read that almost as soon as it came out. I had read other stuff as well. I had read a lot of Mormon history. Michael, I read Michael Quinn's books when I was 17. Oh, wow. You know, and uh, yeah, so I was, I was pretty familiar with Mormon history and all of that. It just hadn't grabbed me. Um, the way that I guess Niebuhr did. 
Orson Scott Card wrote this piece a little while ago. Mm -hmm. I, I forget, but he was just kind of saying like in Mormons, we don't really make a place for people that have more like intellectual kind of interests. Sure. I don't know if you ever came here, but yeah, but he said essentially because you said you read the, all that stuff by the time you were sixteen, seventeen, which probably most people don't yeah. really do. Yeah. But he said like he'd read like all the volumes of history of the church. He'd read like basically yeah. everything by the time yeah. he was like yeah. sixteen or seventeen. Yeah. But he felt totally ostracized at church because mm -hmm. he wasn't really making the. I mean, he was a bit of a. I guess he might have been a bit of a jerk, or might have been rude, or, or he might have, you know, he yeah. had some you know, some stuff yeah, about yeah, him. But yeah, yeah. like most people at that age, like the cool kids were, they were doing other sure. kinds of mistakes, and they were kind of better taken care of. Whereas the people with these kind of more intellectual interests yeah, were kind yeah, of like yeah. ignored. Well, or you know, yeah, and it. I think this is kind of a product of. Um, oh well, you know, I mean, there was an age in Mormon history, um, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, in which some of those prominent and charismatic leaders of Mormonism were also real intellectuals. Um, they were people who were reading philosophy and who were reading science and who were reading sociology. And they were translating all of this into Mormonism and you know, writing. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, of course, of James Talmadge. Whitstow. Um, John Whitstow, certainly. B.H. Roberts. Um, these, these guys were, I mean, you know, Jesus the Christ, which is Talmadge's favorite most famous book, right. is in many ways a synthesis of a lot of reasonably conservative, but, uh, but nonetheless a lot of Protestant scholarship on Jesus, right. which Talmadge read, and he cites, you know, so he was reading Protestant theology, and he was using it to explain Mormonism. Um, right. B.H. Roberts is doing the same thing, and so is John Whitsoe, and all these men are general authorities, you know, and, and so I think that was kind of a period in which this, what you're saying is more kind of a more intellectual version of Mormonism was really celebrated and, and embraced, um, and in the past 50 years or so, I think um, the spectrum has moved in a different direction, large part well, you know, the, the, the kind of common hobby horse that people beat about this is to blame it all on correlation and say that correlation made the church boring and made the church bad. Um, cor correlation, uh, yeah, yeah, correlation basically was in the 1960s and 70s. Um, Should I give you a rundown of correlation? The, the, LD well, I think, well, okay. yeah. the LDS churches came together and they just basically combined all the materials to make it easily accessible to the and, st and streamlined across the board yeah. so it was you know even yeah yeah to, this, to this began in March 1961 yeah. and it, it was supposed to be um, as you say just uh, kind of I mean we had all these different auxiliaries right the Sunday school the young women's the young men's primary um, and they were all doing their own thing and the idea of cor correlation is to bring all of them together and, and make sure they're all doing the same thing and kind of working in tandem instead of just running off in their own directions. And, of course, this was really important, and it was very useful, and the church managed to become a global religion because of correlation. Right. Um, one of the reasons it happened was that there were you know schismatic movements, not really... Right, it was yeah. confusion over the doctrine, yeah. and sometimes people bring in things from the outside, mm -hmm. and they just you know, they had no real consistency sometimes, yeah. and there was... Well, and, and it's, I think it's, so, it's, it's awkward to say, I think, bringing things from the outside, oh, oh, well, okay, okay, that's, okay. that's happening <laughs> all yeah. the time anyway. Sure, sure. sure, but, sure. But, but, but certainly there's a lot of stuff happening independent of central church leadership. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had the third convention in Mexico, right, where a, a big chunk of Mormons living in northern Mexico break off and, and sort of defy Salt Lake City and go their own way right. for, for a decade. Right. Similar things are happening in Nigeria, um, even, you know, in Europe. And so the notion is we need to kind of organize the church. We need to make all the minds of authority clear. And one side effect of this, though, is that there is a, was an increasing suspicion within the church 
of the sort of stuff that general authorities like Talmadge and B.H. Roberts were reading. Right. Right, of saying, well, going and reading Protestant thinkers and saying, oh, this is really interesting. I wonder if I can read this Protestant guy and use him to explain Mormonism better. Yeah. Right, there's an increased sort of suspicion of that, an increased sense that that's not really what Mormons should do. And then you, you end up with this dichotomy that a lot of Mormons still say today, which is, well, there's the intellectual side of things, and then there's the spiritual side of things. And, right. and it's clear and, which one has, like, like the preeminence. Yeah, right, priority, which we're right, supposed right. to like, right? And I, I just think, I think that's a completely false dichotomy. I think, right. um, I think you know, and I think scripturally speaking, that's a false dichotomy, because all the way through scripture, you find admonitions like, you know, the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind, right? And knowledge is a gift of the Spirit, and so on and so forth, right? I think there are... There are two ways of sort of understanding, um, but but it's very popular, I think, to um, centralize them. Well, we're going to kind of jump into your book, though, here. Sure. Um, so your book's called The Mormon People, and just touch on that. You mentioned, like, Whitstow, Talmadge, like, all these kind of, like, LDS academic uh, kind of that were leaders in the church, yeah. but they were also fairly academically minded. Yeah. Um, they were leaders about 100 years ago, and while some of their records survive today and are quoted, um, there wasn't a period like around the 50s, uh, mid-century, there was um, kind of leadership and correlation, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. which was this process of... And I guess in your book, I, I mean, I, the reading that I took of it was, was... I definitely felt like there was... I mean, there was some bias that came across. You seem to, like, oh. really kind of treat <laughs> a bit of, like, kind of, like, when they're... You really seem to appreciate... Well, I mean, speaking with you, it's sure, kind of... Sure. I mean, like... Yeah. Like, you really appreciated the work they had done, and then you felt like they got a little bit of, like, the short end of the stick, or the shorter end of the stick. They didn't quite get due justice when when later on a lot of the work was kind of... Sure. You know, kind of overlooked for, like, you know, others that were much less academic or even... I... Well... So it's easy to draw this sort of distinction and say, right, like, these guys were fun and interesting, and what comes after is boring and bland. And I don't think that's actually necessarily true. I, I wouldn't, definitely oh, wouldn't sure. go that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, I'm not saying you're saying that. But, um, but I actually think there's a lot of continuity between the Witsos and the Talmudges and the B.H. Roberts and somebody like, say, Bruce R. McConkie, right. um, who was probably the preeminent Mormon thinker of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, McConkie, among more kind of liberal, intellectually Mormon types, he gets a bad rap. Um, and I think it's kind of undeserved. I think he's attacked by a lot of Mormon intellectuals because he is pretty conservative doctrinally. Sure. Um, but in a lot of ways, he is right along the same paths as someone like, like B.H. Roberts. Um, both of them are very, very much makers of modern Mormonism in the sense that both of them think that to be a Mormon, the main thing is you have to live a disciplined and moral life. Right. And it's important to kind of, oh, you know, to oh, discipline yourself, to live ethically. Um, and both of them very, very, very much deny the traditional Christian notion of original sin, the idea you know, that human beings are basically... Um, incapable of being perfect, mm-hmm. incapable of being good without the grace of God. Both of them really subscribe to this idea that it's all about moral discipline. And that, I think, really comes to characterize what modern Mormonism is all about. Now, in some ways, I would say people like B.H. Roberts and, and what's so intelligent are kind of naive um, because they really do have this, I think, extraordinary faith in what human beings can do if we just sort of stick to it and work hard. And that leads... And that was a product of their time as well, right? Well, it was very much that America, yes. at the turn of the early 20th century, yes. there was a lot of that self-improvement. Yeah, and this is the progressive era, right? Which right. is which is 
Teddy Roosevelt and all that. Woodrow Wilson, right. and, you know, all these people. There were reformers, right, who do think if we just sort of educate everyone well, everyone will be perfectly good all the time. We can eliminate crime if we just can't build enough schools, right, that kind of thinking. And certainly I think Talmadge and Roberts um, subscribe to some degree of that, which leads eventually to this sort of culture of Mormon perfectionism that we see by the end of the 20th century, right, where, where we're all kind of beating ourselves up for not being good enough. Um, and then, and then the, that eventually leads to a backlash in some senses, and you get books like Believing Christ by Stephen Robinson, which sort of, or Elder Uchtdorf's talk from General Conference, right, which say, we, hey, we all need to remember Right, that we, no matter how hard you try, you're gonna screw up sometimes, um, and we should think then. Well, and this I think was a very very important thing that Uchtdorf spoke about on last Sunday in conference. It's an important aspect of 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 Robinson's book, and it's also actually something that really spoke to me when I was reading these Protestant theologians from the mid twentieth century that. Um, Mormons tend to think of sin as screwing up and the atonement as something that fixes it when we screw up. Sure. But actually we have that kind of backwards um, because God's grace is always there and always embracing us. Sin is us resisting that grace that's always there. Sin is us saying... I want to do it my own way, or I'm afraid. Well, I think, I'm but where proud. that gets caught up, though, is because the ato- access and the atonement is supposed to be conditional as something you're supposed to work for and kind of be approved of in a way, right? So it's like, Which it's not, you don't really quite get the free lunch, you know, because you got to qualify first, right? No, so we always have Well, at least how lunch. they teach it. Well, sure. <laughs> it's a nibbly talk, right? Work we must, but the lunch is free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Right. But I mean, but I mean, at least in mm. teaching it, though, it seems yeah. like you know, if you're teaching that to someone new, like you got to teach, like, hey, look, this is something you got to like kind of qualify for. You got to have faith. You got to like, you know, ah. you got to do some of your own work nope, to kind of correct. <laughs> well, well, at least in teaching, at least in teaching it. I think that, that's precisely it, right? You, we, what we talk about, say, I mean, a very common phrase you hear is applying the atonement. Right, exactly, right? exactly. Or, um, exactly. But that's the issue, right? The atonement is not something you just sort of like take out of the medicine cabinet and, and rub on your hurt place whenever you get hurt, right? right. Um, it's um, rather, I think, um, we exist in a world that is basically sinful. The world is a fallen place. It has been since the fall, right? The world is always sinful. Right. And we're and we and sin is not an act that we commit. Sin is simply a natural byproduct of us being alive. Um, because you know we live in a world of limits. We live in a world where people are are screwed up. We live in a world where we're screwed up, mm-hmm. and because of all of these problems, because there's not enough money, because people fall down and get hurt, right? There's always stuff going wrong all the time, and it's mm-hmm. because we live in that existence that sin is inevitable. Mm-hmm. But because sin is a state of being, not a series of acts that we commit. The atonement is not simply then a piece of medicine that you take when you screw up. The atonement is something that is always already there and is always already saving us from those sins, right? right? It's not something that you turn on and off when you need it. Mm -hmm. It is something that is always sustaining you and allowing you 
to improve even as you're swimming through this entire existence, which is full of sin. Well, yeah, one way I've noticed in a lot of talks is that um, I think Elder Bednar, the Shemel, was, you know, they try to talk about, you know, kind of the enabling power of the atonement. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just kind of like to really kind of get people that are not like thinking like, oh, I'm actively sinning or whatever. Right. Yeah, but you know, precisely. you can still you need it to your daily life, and it also yeah. kind of works with kind of self improvement idea. Yeah, and, yeah, precisely. You know, and, and I think the, the, the sort of I mean, you know, in 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 the in the Epistle to the Romans, Paul uses. Metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor to talk about the atonement, right? He says the atonement is, it's like expiation of sin. It's like propitiating an angry God. Um, He says uh, it's like justification. It's like sanctification. And we use metaphors for it too, right? The the kind of famous one is that the atonement pays our debts, um, Mm -hmm. which is a metaphor. That's not actually what it is. You know, God is not up there in heaven holding a ledger sheet with, you know, you owe $85 in sin, and so Jesus is going to pay your $85. Right, but I mean, like, uh, metaphorically, it works on us pretty well. Well, it works in some way, but we need to remember that it's only a metaphor. You know, I mean, the he took my whipping story is a metaphor, too. All we have are just this whole series of metaphors, and a very common one is this one I'm talking about, where we sort of think of sin as hurting ourselves and the atonement as an aspirin or a band-aid that will fix that discrete individual sin. And I think a much better, more powerful way and more true way to think about it is that both sin and grace are entire states of being that are always at work on us. Interesting. This is, you know, this is interesting stuff. I, I like it. I'm, I'm, we, we can't, we've gotten into your book already, <laughs> but um, um, I just want to touch on like, kind of like the origin of it. Um, sure. But you're not going to back away from that, though, that, like, looking at B.H. Roberts, John Whitstow, mm-hmm. and Talmadge, that gives you at least some sort of, you feel uh, some sort of connection with those guys. Well, you're happy to write about those guys yeah, in the sure, book. Sure. I mean, it seemed well, like you definitely well, were, were yeah. very but, excited but, but, to write but, about them. I mean, them I also, I, de- I really respect um, Elder McConkie. Um, um, as well, because I think he's a really formidable person, oh, okay, and a true. very powerful true. person, and, 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 and enunciates a lot of, of strong ideas. I think, though, the thing, I would, I would, it would be less that I identify myself with Talmadge and D.H. Roberts as thinkers, then I think that it's important that we think of Mormonism as something that's always in a state of being built. Oh, yeah. yeah right? Too, yeah. Um, yeah. And that, um, and we tend to, it's easy if we, you, know, you think in, in terms of, oh, I don't know, like, well, in terms of you know, kind of claims of restoration, like you know, One True Church and all of that, to think that, well, we have it all, it's all here now. But I, I don't think that's true. You know, I think it's, the faith is something that's always evolving, always mm-hmm. developing, always changing. And what you had in the early 19th century, I think, was a real conscious awareness of that. Yeah. In which a lot of these people were saying, well, I think this. And maybe it, maybe it would be useful if we thought about the idea of restoration in this way. And they'd kind of exchange ideas and gradually, I think, together kind of push the whole work forward. Mm-hmm. And so this concludes part one of our two-part uh, interview with Matt Bowman. The second part, we're going to talk a little bit more about Matt's book, The Mormon People, and some other very interesting topics. So please find that on the podcast page. Thanks for listening.